Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Dear Father, we pray now for just time of looking into your word. Thank you so much for your word, Lord God. We pray that you would just help us to mine the truth within it, Lord, and practically obey these truths, and they would be uh, important in our lives, Lord God. In Jesus' name and for his sake, we pray. Okay, so now, if you remember, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel was really a book about three people. Samuel, Saul, and David. We saw sort of the lives of all of these people, and it was a transition between Samuel, the, pro- the first, last of the judges, first of the prophets, and then we went to the first of the monarchs, and that was King Saul. Second Samuel is really about one person, and that is King David. Uh, King David could be arguably be said to be the most well-known person of the, in the Old Testament, uh, mainly because he has this whole book, obviously, that details all of his exploits. Uh, in 1 Samuel, we saw the, the people's choice for a king. This was Saul. We saw his failings and we saw his descent into sin. In 2 Samuel, we're going to see God's choice of a king. We're going to see his triumphs. We're also going to see his sins too. If you remember towards the end of 1 Samuel, we saw it was... Do you remember Saul was kind of pursuing David, trying to seek his life across the the wilderness of Israel? Uh, David fled eventually to the Philistines. I think I dealt with that a few weeks back. Um, And he was almost in the situation where he was going to have to fight against his own people. And then thankfully he was excused, the Philistines didn't want to actually fight with him, and he went back to uh, the Philistine town where he was staying, only to find out that it had been ambushed. If you remember, the Amalekites had raided that his village, probably as some retribution for the raids that he'd been doing, and they'd taken the, the women, the children, and all his goods. David then pursued them with his men, and they took everything back. They got everyone back, no one was lost at that time. But during this period, the Philistines were gathering, Philistines at large, were gathering together for war against Saul and the forces of Israel. And I don't know who did, probably, I think Doug probably did it last week. You dealt with the, uh, I wasn't here last week, you see, but you would have dealt with the, uh, the death of King Saul, um, the way that he tragically sort of fell, fell on his, um, on his spear there and killed himself. The end of King Saul. You see, he lost his dynasty, he lost his kingdom, and eventually he lost his crown. You know, and this was all because rather than choosing to die to self, that sort of Christian phrase that we, we use to mean stop sinning, repent and obey God, he quite literally chose death, self-death, if you want to put it like that, suicide. It reminds me of that verse in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. They all caught up with him at this stage. So kind of the end of 1 Samuel flows seamlessly into the beginning of 2 Samuel, like I said, because they were one book. 2 Samuel is about David, his rise to power, his victories, spiritual and political victories. And then obviously we see his fall into sin, very famous event, um, and the chaos that ensued because of that. Two key events in the book of 2 Samuel. Probably the best highlight would be the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is that everlasting covenant that the Lord made with, with David, rather, to um, promise an eternal dynasty to David. And it typifies and has its ramifications that reach all the way to Christ and obviously and further into the, the coming kingdom, the New Testament period. It's very, very critical for biblical theology. And then obviously perhaps probably the most well-known other episode in David's life, contrast, is that fateful stroll he took on the rooftop where something caught his eye, and you all know the story, when he saw Bathsheba, and he committed that sin with her. However, what we also see, unlike Saul, is that we see David confessed his sins, he did humble himself, he submitted himself to God's discipline, and the end of his life, you see the end of these books, you're going to see that he spent 
trying to build a house for God and preparing the construction of the temple for his son Solomon. And we'll, we'll see that as we go through these historical books. And one of the things, a good way to look at these sort of portions of scripture, a lot of people struggle just to read all this narrative and these, these histories. You'll find it when you go through 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Chronicles. There's a lot of maybe repetition and different focuses. One of the ways, well, one of the reasons, obviously more reasons that we could enumerate, but one of the reasons is that it gives us very good examples, practical examples of biblical principles. Very much like the way you'll find the principles in the epistles, do this, don't do that, abstain from this, being lived out in the book of Acts and the Gospels, you'll find principles from, say, the book of Proverbs being actually physically demonstrated for us in the lives of these kings of Israel. So in 2 Samuel, you could really sum it up with Proverbs 14.34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Proverbs 28.13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. You'll see that in the life of David as we go through all of this. So let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1, and let's read the first verse. Now it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziglag. Remember, Ziglag was where David and his men were staying in Philistine territory. David returned home, like I said, to find the town was raided, the family taken, and that the battle ensued, and he went on from there. Let's read verses 2 to 10. I'll, I'll read all of them for you, and then we'll make some comment. On the third day, behold... A man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head and it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And then David said to him, From where do you come? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did things go? Please tell me. And he said, The people have fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead and Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. So David said to the young man, Who told him? How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called me, and I said, Here I am. He said to me, Who are you? And I answered, I'm an Amalekite. And then he said to me, Please stand beside me and kill me. For agony has seized me because of my life, because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. So we have this story here of this young man who comes to David with this story about the death of King Saul. There's quite a few things we can say about this. The first phrase that really jumps out of me is it says, a man came out of the camp. Now, I think there's quite a lot we can tease out from this. It says he was an Amalekite, but yet he came from the camp of Israel. You know, what was he doing there? That's a question. Why was he leaving? Why was he going to Saul now if he was supposedly fighting with David? These are all questions that we can ask about this man. And see, I see in this man, he's an opportunist. I believe he was probably quite happy to follow, to follow Saul and be with against David and go around on those raids while he was in the camp of Israel because Saul was the man on the throne, he had the power, that was where it was right now. But now he's obviously seen Saul, Saul's dynasty has run its course. And most commentators assume that what he wants, why he does this is he wants to ingratiate himself to the new incoming king 
He wants to sort of earn favour with the new throne and the dynasty that's going to come with that. He wants to follow the next big thing. And I think there's a lot of lessons, if I can sort of make some, some spiritual application here. This is how a lot of people choose their religion. They will make their assessments based on things, what is popular, what is the, the next big thing, or pragmatically, what seems to be working. Usually analysing things by the ways of the world. How big is their ministry? Do they have the outward appearances of success? You see, in this situation, Saul was on the throne, David was hiding in caves, he was living in Philistine territory. You wouldn't really, <laughs> you know, go and be with David unless you were actually following David for the right reasons. At this point he was with Saul. Saul is dead. And this reminds me a lot, and you know, we're not immune to this. Remember, everything we read in the Old Testament was written for our instruction so that we can learn from these examples. And that means that we are (laughs) prone to committing the same mistakes that Israel committed. It's very easy easy of us to sort of sit here and read these stories and be like, "These, these people are just, why are they doing these stupid things? It's because these things just sneak up on us. We are prone to, to fall into these sort of errors. I've seen this with the church. If you grew up in the church in the 90s, the big thing then was the Toronto blessing. This was sort of a, a sort of a supposed outpouring of God's spirit uh, that, that sort of culminated in some very wacky behaviour. And I remember well, this is the kind of the area that I became a Christian. Everyone was sort of talking about getting the blessing. You have to go get the blessing and people were flying their pastors over to this church in Toronto so that they could get touched by someone with the blessing and they were bringing it back and it was spreading all over. That was the big thing at that time. The church followed it. In the 2000s, from sort of 2005 onwards, it was the emerging church, if you know that term, the seeker-sensitive movement, the Rick Warren, the Brian McLaren. I remember Brian McLaren saying that he based his emergent church model on after he watched MTV. And he liked the way that MTV attracted the young people with the lights and the stage and all these sorts of things. So he thought, hey, that's what we need to do in church. Absolute nonsense. But you see, he's chasing the next big thing, what the worlds were. Now, what's today's big thing in the church? Now, there were many that we could go. I'm going to digress slightly now and explain one to you that I think is a big issue. I think everyone is trying to get the church to jump on board with what's called the social justice bandwagon. This is the this term social justice. I'll flesh it out a bit for you. It is what lays behind so many of the cultural clashes that we see today. All of these hashtag movements and all these sorts of things are undergirded by a social justice mentality. Now, the hard thing to understand is the words social or the word justice is something that is biblical. So we need to be smart here and understand the difference between social justice as defined by the culture and biblical justice as demonstrated that Christians should be involved in throughout the Bible. You see, in the past, justice was a chief and has always been and should always be a chief concern of the Christian. People like William Wilberforce, William Booth, the slave trade, uh, William Booth and the Salvation Army and the poor in London, you see, they practiced their justice, their acts of justice to right wrongs based on a biblical worldview based on an understanding of people and equality of people based on the image of God, based on the fact that God commanded people to help, to be involved in making the world a better place in this sort of way. That was generally what everyone sort of understood by justice, you know, targeting injustice and wrongs and these sorts of things. It was very much something that existed from a framework of the Judeo-Christian worldview. 
You really wouldn't find these sorts of things in the ancient world. You didn't find them across lots of other parts of the world in the way that we have them today. However, what has happened now, social justice is something that's a term that's emerged in the last you know, five years maybe, and it has completely rejected the Judeo-Christian foundation and the meaning of justice, and it really has its roots in the secular university, basically. It, you know, it rejects everything that the foundation that we have. It is un- so this means that social justice is being undertaken from a framework that is not compatible with the Bible. Okay, it's not that it's just kind of indifferent. When you tease it out, it's actually not compatible with the Bible. Instead, it is based on... I'm going to give you some of these terms. They're long terms. You might have heard some of these things. Neo-Marxism, critical race theory, postmodern deconstructionism, queer critical theory, gender theory, intersectional politics, identity politics... All these sorts of, you've heard these terms, if you, ever, if you see the news, if you see American politics at the moment, you'll be aware of these sorts of terms. The, let me, I won't go through all of them. The ideas that these things are talking about. All people are enslaved and oppressed by society's structures. Therefore, all authority is, is you know, oppressive and must be levelled. People are poor because the rich have robbed them. And people are then divided up into victim groups. And there is a victimhood mentality. These victim groups are usually done on either the basis of race, of gender, of orientation, of all these different sorts of things. And the idea is, the more of these oppressed victimhood categories that you fit under, the more oppressed you are. And the the people who fit under very few of these categories, usually male and religious people, um, they are the ones who are obviously doing the oppressing. That is how the narrative sort of goes. And thus this sort of leads to what we call identity politics. This is where people gain power through politics by pandering to these victim groups. They set up the victim groups and then they appeal to them in various different ways. Now, this is sort of, you know, you've probably heard the term white privilege, toxic masculinity. What are these terms that have recently come up in there? I'm not raising them as a side issue. I actually see them as being very prominent in, in the way that the world is heading at the moment. They even have terms for it. They call it woke. Have you ever heard that term? I mean, someone who is aware of social injustice. It's a really kind of prized badge to wear to be woke. Uh, Hollywood considers itself very woke. You might see every, every year we get this sort of celebration where all these woke people in Hollywood, they gather together to pat themselves on the back and give themselves awards. Um, so we get all the, the wealthy and the privileged in the nation and they gather together and then they lecture everyone about the dangers of wealth and privilege. It's hilarious, really. But that is what happens at the Oscars every year, if you haven't seen that I'm referring to. Now, that's just my view. Don't get me wrong. That's not a biblical view. I'm just push, pushing. That's what I believe is the correct understanding of these things. It's their own ideology. And sooner or later, you'll see that these things do not fit with biblical values. Because you might find out that all of a sudden, someone who supports traditional marriage, even though he fits into maybe one of the other victim groups, no, no, that's a no. You can't, you can't, you can't be a victim group if you support biblical values. Same thing with abortion. Same thing with, with all these different issues. And all of a sudden, you realise that this is not social justice. This is, this is justice as defined by one particular group that is in fact antithetical to the biblical concept of justice. This is why I'm raising it as a problem because it's the, you know, particularly on university campuses and with young people, everyone, you know, people rightly have an understanding there's a lot of wrong in the world and they want to help. But they're, the only thing they're being offered is social justice. And most people are inequipped to realise the ideology that's going behind this and how it sets itself up against biblical justice. And this is a real challenge for the church. 
to stand up and make sure that we are not, you know, neglecting the call to justice that we find in the Bible, but we're also <laughs> understanding it biblically. For example, so if you had an African American, um, so that's one victimhood category. Um, but if someone like, say, Ben Carson, the, the guy who ran for president, um, or, or Kanye West is probably a more example, he, if he does not want to see himself as a victim, so therefore he sort of rejects this group think that is going on around the place, they turn on their own and they say that he's now a racist and a bigot and a traitor to his own people. Well, because, you see how it works. It's, it's very much they hold the cards and they play, the, they run the game. Um, we must, the church must not fall for that. Unfortunately, a lot of the church is falling for that because the word justice can have both good, is a good thing ultimately, but not when it's undergirded by this ideology. Justice must be compatible with biblical truth. The church doesn't have to be overtly biblical in everything that's done. There are plenty of good organisations doing things that aren't overtly biblical, but it must at least be compatible that Christians can at least operate within this framework, and that is the key thing that we need to, we need to understand. This ideology, I could spend a whole, you know, we, it's a big issue, we could spend hours on this. I just want to make you aware of it, because as you watch the news, you see the immigration arguments, you see the refugee arguments, you see the open borders, the sex education, the abortion laws, the Antifa groups. All of these things are coming from those ideologies. Okay, they haven't just, they haven't just come around because of someone like President Trump. They were there already, and these things are polarizing, and this is how it goes. It's an ideology that undergirds these things, and as Christians, we are called to be discerning of these things. And we have to spend a bit of time trying to understand it. I understand that's a little digression, but my point is, don't follow the latest trend, we follow the Bible. Now let's get back into uh, the Samuel. Now, this Amalekite comes out. Now whether he actually killed Saul is a point of discussion and disagreement. Because obviously you'll remember that the, in one Samuel it kind of implies that Saul killed himself by his committed suicide. So whether we actually killed him, it, it could have been something like Saul did try and commit suicide, but he was still kind of alive when this man stumbled upon him, and he did do what he said, and he did kill him. Um, people are sort of divided on that. I happen to think that probably is what happened. The text doesn't really give us any other reason. I'm sure that the guy was lying and leaving out maybe a little bit of what happened to ingratiate himself to David, but the text does seem to imply that that is what happened. Now, it's not a big issue, but we'll, we'll, we'll go from that standpoint. Now, it's a question to ask. What was that Amalekite doing in the midst of Israel? He'd obviously been there a while to be able to go to battle and be in that camp. Now, I would say he was obviously assimilated enough to be accepted. There were a lot of foreigners and strangers, as they call them, who did live amongst the people of Israel at that time. But let's ask the question, was his heart still... You know, We know from this story that his heart... He was still willing to kill the king of Israel at that time. And that really shows you, I believe, something about this person. You see, you, you remember that when Saul asked his armour-bearer to kill him, armour-bearer wouldn't do it. It was known, in his, you, don't king, you can't kill a king of Israel. That was sort of the, the, the attitude that they had in Israel. You remember it earlier when uh, um, they were killing the priests at Nob and... The Israelites wouldn't do it, and they had to get Doeg the, the, Doeg the Edomite to do it. That was just how it was. But this man here, he's in the midst, and he's happy to do this. Now, I'd say he was so assimilated, he probably said the right words, he went through the motions, but I'd say this shows us his heart was never truly 
with the God of Israel. Very much reminds me of Judas with the disciples. Lived with Jesus, followed Jesus around, ate with him, listened to his teachings, took communion, you know, took Passover meal with him and all these sorts of things, not communion, Passover meal. And, um, but yet we know <laughs> he wasn't one of the disciples in that true sense. And this is again another challenge for us. And I find this probably the most difficult. You see, he'd kind of been the routine of life. He'd been accepted into the sort of the camp of Israel, but yet he was willing to do things that were not really from someone who should be in the camp of Israel. And as we go about our lives, the routine of life, the busyness of the church week, we go to church on Sunday, we go back to our working weeks, we come to church on Wednesday, we go back to our working week. A month can go by, weeks go by so quick, you know, I still have, you know, every sort of couple of days, Sarah will put a few books on the bottom of my stairs that have found their way out of my office around the house and she'll just suck and put them on the table. And there are some that end up lying there for like four and a half months because every time I walk past them I think I must bring them up but I haven't got time to do that right now because I'm doing something. And before you know it, it's kind of like half a year's gone. And it's the normalcy of life and there's this sort of, you know, it's not a bad thing, it's just, it is just how it goes. We can, it can subtly dull us into just going through the motions Okay, not really having our heart in the right place. It dulls our discernment so that whenever we do get free time, we sort of usually fill it with distractions. You know, we get quite a lot of small amount of free time generally, but we're very good at filling that up with things that distract us. And when we do that, we lose the urgency of our mission. We say William Booth, listen to this quote by William Booth. He was the founder of the Salvation Army. He says, the tendency, tendency of fire is to go out. Watch the fire on the altar of your heart. Anyone who has tended a fireplace knows that it needs to be stirred up occasionally. And I think we all can fall victim to this sort of thing if we don't check our, if we don't just examine ourselves every now and then. Remember C.S. Lewis, remember his screw tape letters, I always quote screw tape letters, it's a fantastic book if any of you have ever read it. Just in case you haven't, the idea of it is that it's a letter between a senior devil in heaven, uh, in hell rather, and a junior devil on earth who is, and he's giving him an instruction on how to make sure, and how to sort of tempt Christians and keep people away from coming to God, and they're all given what they call a patient, which is a person, and the enemy is obviously, in this context, is referring to God, so everything's sort of flipped from what we're used to. And Screwtape says this about distraction. He says, you will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering attention. You you no longer need a good book, which he really likes, to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods of time. You can keep him up late at night, not roistering, but staring at a dead fire in a cold room. And if C.S. Lewis was writing this today, I'm sure he would have said, staring at a phone. (laughs) All the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return, so that at least he may say, as one of my own patients said on arrival down here, I now see that I spent most of my life doing neither what I ought not or what I liked. Nothing is very strong, strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what uh, sorry, it knows not what and knows not why. It does not matter how small the sins are provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light 
and into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards will do the trick. And then he ends, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones and without signposts. The whole narrative is much longer than that and it's so insightful. And I think this is something that we all can understand and particularly probably us living in the West where we're slightly more used to creature comforts and these sorts of things and like I say, the weeks go by we, a lot of us, you know, me, I, I do the same thing pretty much every week in some respects um, and sometimes you can sort of predict how the week's going to go and if I'm not careful, you know, I just forget to kind of commit my days to the Lord to ask the Lord to, to be present in my day, to intervene in my day because I wake up in the morning, I look at my diary, I know what I'm doing, and I just wait to get home in the evening, like most of us do. And there's nothing wrong per se with that, except you can see it just can have an effect on us if we're not careful. And when we're like this, the devil can use other temptations to distract us even further. Now, on a more corporate note, thinking back to this Amalekite coming from the people of, uh, of Israel, remember the, the warning of Jesus in Matthew 7, where he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons and perform miracles in your names? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Remember the words of the Apostle John in 1 John. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. You see what he's getting at here. Truth of the matter is, there are sometimes those who shelter within the banner of the church who are in fact wolves. They are there, I would say, pretty much like, like this Amalekite is sheltering under the safety of Israel for a time. But when he sees his opportunity, he's happy to strike the king down to try and earn favour with the new thing that's coming in. We'll see how that works out for him in a minute. However, if we're not aware of these things, these wolves as we would call them in sheep's clothing, if they are not removed, it is often them that inflict the most damage on us. You see, think... If you can remember back to when we did 1 Samuel, chapter 15, I think, if I remember rightly. Saul was commanded to get rid of all of the Amalekites. Do you remember that? He was commanded to get rid of all of the Amalekites. He disobeyed God. He spared some of them. And now we see here this Amalekite delivering his final blow. You see, in the Bible, uh, and a lot of illustrations, if you've ever read commentaries, Amalek or the Amalekites are often used as an illustration of the flesh. When I say the flesh, we're talking about that fleshly nature, the sin nature that that we have, that propensity uh, to sin that is in all of us. And there's a good reason why people make this uh, connection. I'll, I'll just read to you some of the parallels. You see, you remember when the Israelites first came out of Egypt, when Amalek first attacked them, and they did it by coming up the rear and picking off the people who were old and tired and weak at the back. And so it is with our flesh. Often it's times when we're, we're just tired, we're exhausted and we're weak. We let our defences down, we let the armour of God down in our lives. The Amalek is there, the flesh is there, all of a sudden, to pounce on you. It's, the Bible also says that Amalek is in a constant state of war with God. Just as we know that our flesh is always waging war in our members against the spirit. It says that Israel, you remember the story when Israel, Moses was up on the hill praying as Israel was fighting the Amalekites in the valley. And when he lifted up his hands and he prayed, Israel prevailed. 
And when he dropped his hands, the Amalekites prevailed. We only have victory over the flesh if we're constant in prayer. And this is one of the things, thinking back to that sort of the normalcy, the, you know, the normality of life, quite often, isn't it, prayer is the first thing that really gets squeezed out. I'm not talking about your, maybe your quick morning prayer and your quick grace before meal. I'm talking about prayer where you're spending intimate time with God. Okay? Doesn't take, you know, it doesn't have to take necessarily long, but it's that point, you know, for some reason, it just always seems to be the thing that is push, pushed out when things get busy. Now, I know it shouldn't be, like, you know, like as many as say, if you're too busy to pray, then you're too busy. And we all, we all understand this, this sort of battle, but it's just that, again, we just have to check ourselves when we do these things. God also said that Amalek will one day be utterly blotted out. We know one day, obviously, our sin natures will be removed. And it's also said that Amalek often aligned himself with the other enemies of God in the battle, the Amorites and these other tribes against Israel. Our fleshly nature will often use the things around us, the temptations around us, the people around us, to corrupt our thinking and therefore to corrupt our actions. Saul failed to deal with Amalek, and it came back to literally kill him. In the same way, if we fail to put to death the flesh when God asks us or prompts us or convicts us of a sin, it may very well be that same thing that comes back later and strikes that death blow in us. Warren Rearsby said, The sin we fail to slay is the one that slays us. Romans 8.13 For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We put to death the work of the flesh. This is the sort of thing that we're looking at here. And we also must remember the effects can go far beyond our small space and our own time period. They can actually sort of echo through future history. And kind of think about this. 1 Samuel 15, Saul spares King Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Later on in Israel's history, when the Persian Empire is come to supremacy, there's a story, there's a beautiful book called Esther, there's a man in that book who wants to destroy, he hates the Jewish people and he wants to destroy all of Israel. Anyone know the guy? Haman. Haman, yeah. Now, Esther chapter 3 verse 1. After these things, King Asarias, the Persian king, promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Haman was a descendant of King Agag. The very person that Saul was told, that, you know, this shouldn't have been something that happened, but it was still there. You see... He was a descendant of the Amalekites and King Agag, to be precise. Saul's disobedience came to fruition all those years later and had consequences for the whole of the nation of Israel. You see, never underestimate the flesh and never underestimate the little, the little sins. You know, I'm sure Saul thought, well, I've done pretty much 99% of that command. It's just a couple of things that I haven't done well. Don't hold on to secret sins. Don't think that small sins are, not, are insignificant. Keep short accounts with God. Often it's the ones that go unnoticed. Unforgiveness, bitterness, hatred, pride. These are harder, I would say, to deal with than things like, you know, adultery and murder and all these sort of the big things that we obviously are very easy to spot. And you can identify them and, and, you know, people can come into your life. But those other sort of things, and we're all very good at hiding them in our own lives. You know we are. But this is one, this is one thing, you know, if we don't deal with the flesh, it, it very, you know, think, think of a, Think of how Saul died. It was that Amalekite that shouldn't have been there, that was there to deliver that blow. And then think of Haman. 
years later that was once there again. Now let's read verses 11 to 16. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so also did all the men who were with him. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who told him, Where are you, where are you from? And he answered, I am a son of an alien and a Malachite. Then David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go, cut him down. So he struck him and he died. And David said to him, Your blood is on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now I'd imagine this whole event played out very differently in the head of the Amalekite when he was concocting his plan. Because he obviously looked at the situation and understood it as best he could. David's been on the run from King Saul. David and Saul are obviously bitter enemies. Saul wants to King David. David will be very happy that Saul is dead. I'm going to be the one to give him that good news. He also didn't like Jonathan, or else why would Jonathan not be trying to kill him with his father Saul, or at least still with his father Saul, not trying to kill him. But you know what, you understand what I mean. He obviously thought, oh, maybe Saul and Jonathan, again, this is going to be great for me. I'm going to be the one to bear this amazingly good news. In fact, I'm going to bring him the crown that he can then put on his head and start his new kingship. That will put me in a great position. So when he tells him this news, and David starts to rend his clothes and weep, and mourn. I'd imagine this man is suddenly standing there. Ooh. And he's a bit like, that, this is not, okay, okay, it's not going particularly how I was expecting it. And obviously then the story is, David says, turns to him, after they've mourned, he's led the nation in mourning, or his people in mourning, he says, why were you not afraid to strike down the, the, the Lord's anointed? And he has one of his men kill him. A lot of people make, make a big deal out about this. How could David do that? Um, I'll be honest, it's not really an issue for me. I think in the context of ancient warfare, there's not really an army in the world that would have allowed someone to walk in and proclaim they just killed the king and really walk out of that courtroom with everyone going, well done, good job. If you know much about the ancient Near East, it just, does, it just didn't happen. It just didn't happen like that. Probably wouldn't even happen like that today. But So that's the situation. You see, he underestimated David. He assumed that this was going to be good news and it was bad news. And again, we see another biblical principle here. Proverbs twenty-four seventeen: Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. This was David's heart here. He mourned, he tore his clothes, and it went like that. Now let's read the final verses. There's quite a long section here, and you'll notice it's slightly different than the former verses. It's a, it's a song. It's basically a psalm you know, that, is, that is written here. A song of Israel. It's called the Song of the Bow. Rather than sort of go through it verse by verse, or because it's sort of poetic in nature, it's quite difficult to do that. So I'm going to just read the whole thing, and then we'll make some sort of closing comments about the whole thing as we do that. So let's read verse 17, uh, and we'll read the whole lot. Then David chanted this lament over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How have the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice, the daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. O mountains of Gilboa, let not dew or rain be on you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul was not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, 
The bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How have the, how have the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of woman. How have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? And there's obviously, you can see there's a lot there, and this is like a a funeral dirge, if you could say that. It's that sort of a feel to it. Now, if we think about this, there's some remarkable features of this song that David writes. I'd imagine it can be, I've never conducted a funeral, but I'd imagine it can be quite difficult when you're asked to do a funeral to know what to say. Um, I think it's probably easier maybe in sort of more free, sort of evangelical type churches where there's obviously sort of a more, uh, you, you know they were saved, but I think of sort of maybe the Anglican parish where they're made to do funerals for like all sorts of people. Some of they know they were probably not saved. Some people were probably not very nice people. It's probably hard to kind of know what to say. And here we get a glimpse of what David said. This is basically his sort of funeral eulogy, basically. And I believe in this song we sort of see why David is often called a man after God's own heart. And again we see many biblical, particularly New Testament principles at play here. So let's remember this in context. Remember what Saul had cost David. He cost him his family, he cost him his friends, he cost him his home. He tried to kill David multiple times. He had him and his people and his family, his women and his children fleeing to the caves, hiding in the caves like animals, like hills. He put David in some of the darkest periods of depression and and despair that David had been in, in his life. He even pushed him out of the borders of Israel into the hands of living, having to live and assimilate with the Philistines to that degree. This is what Saul had done to David. Yet, in spite of all this, you'll notice one striking feature of that song. He does not say one bad word about Saul. And I find that challenging. He does not say one bad word about Saul. David is truly grieved over Saul and Jonathan's death. He is not seeking revenge. He's not seeking to lay out his grievances, his faults. He's not kind of seeking to get it all off his chest and let the people know, you know, to justify his anger and see that now I can take the throne. He's none of that is in, you find that in this song. He is expressing his love for David, for Saul and for Jonathan. And I believe he does it in the finest manner available. You see, not only does he not say anything bad about Saul, Everything he does say about Saul is good. Verse 19, he calls Saul the beauty of Israel. He calls him the mighty. Verse 21, he said, David curses Mount Gilboa because that was the place of Saul's death. Verse 22, David sees Saul as a mighty warrior. Verse 24, he reminds Israel of how good Saul had been to them. He honours Saul and Jonathan and memorialises them in the book of Jasher. Don't be confused by that. That was obviously some sort of historical book that the Israelites kept. It's not a book of scripture. We don't have it available today, regardless of the title of the book of Jasher, if you Google it or put it on Amazon. It's not what they're talking about. Someone has written that at a later date. It was clearly just a collection of the historical, poetical works that obviously Israel kept at that time. David was keen for Saul and Jonathan to be remembered as sons of Judah. And I believe David... One thing you'll know about David, we talked about that covenant that was made with him, he often typifies Christ. He looks forward to Christ, that's why Christ is the son of David, in these sorts of terms like that. And I believe we see David displaying Christ's love here. Remember in Matthew 5, 
the Beatitudes, 44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, very difficult to do, except by supernatural means. What do we know about love? 1 Corinthians 13. You know, it's patient, it's kind, it's not jealous, it does not brag, it's not arrogant, it doesn't act unbecomingly. And then listen, it does not take into account wrong suffered. Biblical love does not take into account wrong suffered. Why? Because vengeance is the Lord's. Just as worship belongs only to the Lord, vengeance belongs only to the Lord. These are principles that David have understood here, I believe. 1 Peter 4.8 Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. See, David here, I believe, is typifying the love of Christ and we are seeing it outplayed in this song. Now there's one final question that I believe is worth asking as we just close up on this. How does David manage to speak so well of Saul after all the suffering he caused David to endure? It's easy to list it and say it and to say it's a picture of Christ, but let's put ourselves in the moment, in Saul's sort of, uh, in David's shoes here, having been through everything that he's been through. And many of us in this room have probably been through pains, pains that have been inflicted by other people you've either met in a church or people who are supposed to be close to you in some way or another. That's something that's pretty common to man in this world. Some will have very serious stories on that regard. And how is it that David now, having had all that's gone to him, is not looking to, you know, to at least tell the, you know, tell everything about Saul so people have a full understanding of what he was? Now, David doesn't lie in this song, but he doesn't feel the need to go into gory detail. In fact, all he does is say the good stuff. Now, I think really, <laughs> There are a few reasons. I'm going to look at just two of them, why and how he can do this. And I think the most important is that he trusted God. He was a true believer. He trusted God. Even in the midst of many of these situations, and you'll learn this as you read the psalmists, the Psalms of David, even though he was in despair, circumstances were bad, and he was not doing particularly well, even sometimes when he was trapped in sin, ultimately he always came back to the Lord. He ultimately knew that God was in control and God would use these things to redeem him, to shape him and ultimately to prepare him for future service which is what we're going to see in the next, well the rest of this book actually too. But secondly, and I think this is very important practically for us, it appears that David has already dealt with Saul's sins against him by forgiving him. He was not holding on to past hurts, not harbouring resentment or bitterness, no desire to exact revenge on the one who sinned against him. Remember Hebrews 12.15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up to cause trouble and by it many are defiled. It's been said that the bitterness blows out the candle of joy and leaves the soul in darkness. The seed of bitterness is a hurt that someone has planted on in you. The soil of bitterness is a heart that harbours and holds on to hostility. The root of bitterness is often underground. You can't see it. You can act pretty much like Everything's okay to a certain extent. It's underground. The remedy to bitterness is the healing balm of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Ephesians 4.31 Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. You see, if you think of bitterness like rubbish, if you haven't taken out the bins, your rubbish smells. If you retain bitterness, it has the same effect. That smell will eventually infiltrate the whole of your home. And here's the thing, when you first walk in your house, you can smell it. But if you stay there and you become accustomed to it, eventually you kind of get used to it and you don't really know it's there. Think of bitterness like that. If you're harbouring it and holding on to it, 
you get to a point where you might not even notice it's there in your life. But when someone knocks on the door and they then come into your house, you can guarantee that they know it's there because they smell it straight away. And this is very much the same thing. At some point, even though it might be underground, it will come up and manifest itself in your life. This is what we would expect to happen with David if he'd been holding on and and he had some, some real things he could have held on to at this time with Saul. But what do we find in this song? He doesn't mention any of these things. You see, we confess, we repent, we seek the Lord, we be rooted and grounded in love instead of in bitterness. Remember in Romans, it says the love of God is poured out in our hearts supernaturally. Sometimes we can't do this on our own or else we'll just be kind of battling in our flesh to, to act good. And all we're doing is putting on a face then. It has to be a work of God. I know it's easier said than done, but I believe God's grace is sufficient for those situations and he will go with you through the times of darkness at your own pace, always prompting you, drawing you back to him. You see, I believe David harboured no bitterness for Saul because he kept short accounts with God and he'd recently come back from a period of darkness. I believe if he had, he wouldn't really have been able to write the song like he wrote it. He would have put something else in there. And I believe this is a very good lesson for us today. And we see that it's a very good thing for, for King David because we're going to read in the next few chapters as we go through this book, David now becomes the king that we all know him to be. And although he has problems again in future life, he starts walking with the Lord. But I won't spoil the story. That's what we'll be studying over the coming weeks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. I thank you, Lord, so much for the word of God, Lord, just for the lessons it contains. I pray now that you would just equip them to our heart. I thank you, Lord, for the book of Second Samuel. And I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to, to be reading it, to be meditating on it, dwelling in it, Lord, and that you would just speak to us at this time as a church, Lord, and also as individuals. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.